0: I was having a little Frenet settles the system. Would you like something? Uh, Some wine if it's open. Mm -hmm. You are listening to Pada Bing Redux, a podcast that rigorously examines the Sopranos and all things that flow from it all over again. I'm Vic Singh. This is the we've got you hooked. You know the names, you know the places. Now we're going to shake things up and take them out of their element episode. Here, Touring Colleges. Could have been anything. Anywhere in the world. Like Hove it and Izzo. In the, world. the choice to go MGMT with kids. A perfect, necessary contrast for what we see Tony do this episode. Strike his first on-camera death blow of the series. There's a certain art to getting your characters out of their element. Putting them in fish-out-of-water situations creates conflict and tension audiences can bask in. Even more curiosity it's an opportunity to see tony in situations where he will have to confront his weaknesses or limitations when he doesn't have home field advantage it's a way to unveil a hidden quality or secret here tony as actual killer as opposed to a hypothetical one and finally the cultural and comedic juxtapositions new environments provide here A mobster touring prestigious colleges with his daughter, the Little Miss Sunshine family and beauty pageants, Marty in Back to the Future, Kristen Wiig in Bridesmaids, Ish Smith on any NBA team. What, thirteen different teams in thirteen seasons? He's a certifiable right answer on. Any immaculate grid. Then there's the matter of locations. They matter. And more than just because production teams have location scouts. Visual diversity, especially new locations, makes everything more dynamic, memorable. Think about the episodes that stand out the most. Pine Barrens, Whitecaps, Commendatory, Soprano Home Movies, this one. What same ingredients do they all share? Varying locations. World building. Other shows that varied the terrain to great effect. Homeland. Game of Thrones. Shit, they had a whole map at the beginning that would essentially tell you where they were going to go that episode. And The Crown. Where are you going? We fade in to bells Tolling. A motif that spans every season of the show. And it's all over episodes like Blue Comet, Soprano Home Movies, whoever did this, Eloise. All episodes where someone dies. Can't help but notice how placing sounds or words over black has this uncanny way of drawing us in, making us focus. Look up off that second screen, which I guess at this point has become a first screen. Winds of change. Here, there's a foreshadowing weight to it all. Meadow's been looking at colleges, and her debrief shifts to Tony's college experience. Different time, different place. Although, it's funny how big he or she is the first in our family to go to college used to be, compared to now. Now everybody has a college degree. And while I'm not suggesting it's become worthless, it's Definitely been devalued. Don't devalue yourself. There's no scarcity anymore. You could say that about a lot of things, even Prestige TV. The car ride, following up on Meadows' curiosities about her dad, in between not being able to find something to listen to, restlessness, thinking but not saying anything, the machinations of getting up the courage to ask that question. Articulating her Easter egg hunting experience compared to most folks. The technique of framing everyday events most of us have, but stamping a unique context on top of it, is one of the things this show does best. Why it's undefeated in the intrigue category. It's kind of interesting how she waited until her senior year in high school to go there, though. Made me wonder about why kids wait as long as they do to ask their parents tough questions. When does that increased awareness set in? There's a version of that question that's relatable to all of us, especially those of us who are parents. Are we this or are we that? Why did we do this or why did we do that? Some of us might even have preempted those questions by preparing answers in anticipation of them. Not me. I'm just the messenger. Her look, the silence that follows it, those car silences, noise around everything but the unsaid thing. The inferences we make from them. Casey Affleck and Lucas Hedges in Manchester by the Sea, Austin Butler and Olivia DeJong in Elvis, Donald Glover and Zazie Beats in Atlanta, Tilda Swinton in we need to talk about Kevin. And my personal favorite, thanks in part to recency bias, no doubt, are the compendium of scenes throughout succession that say so much more than the thousand words they proffer. I don't know about you guys, but I could easily watch an entire film that takes place between two people in a car together. Algorithms or analytics or AI aside, like Locke but a two-shot. Back to Tony and Meadow. How their silence gets Tony to open up and be more or less completely honest with her. Denial is the D in DNA for these guys, especially to people on the outside. Yet here we get a de facto boss opening up to his teenage daughter. What a construct. This scene is driven, no pun intended, almost entirely by just her looks. The one before she gets the truth and the one after she gets it. She's got this otherwise powerful man on skates, like Cole Anthony in that Summer 23 workout video with Donovan Mitchell. She credits her dad for not being in denial about it, like Carmella, but doesn't want him to continue explaining, lest he become mealy-mouthed, her own version of Feech saying he better shut up before he fucks up what's coming to him. <laughs> all right. Let me get out of here before I keep talking and fuck this up. Jeez. This scene's all about the power kids have in the family dynamic. How they're like little oracles of truth serum. What lies within that dart, just begging to course its way through your veins, is an incredibly potent and quite infallible truth serum. From honesty to dishonesty, Tony calls Arena from a phone booth to check in. The famed knight in white satin armor call. Where's hers? Where's Tony's Riz? Svetlana is introduced off screen, naming names before showing faces. Believe it or not, writers get notes back on this technique now. Too hard for busy audiences to follow along, keep up in an ambient environment. Whatever happened to Never mind. The decision to call the woman on the side before his wife, that whole thought process entirely a window into his priorities. Just imagine for a moment if he confused names, meant to call one person but says the other's name. The game is the game indeed after the check-in with arena dies in the vine he calls Carmela, who's homesick at this point he's half listening compared to his level of engagement with arena probably tapped out but also a combination of meadow chatting it up with some boys provides a natural distraction which of course leads his eyes to a certain guy he recognizes from his past people we see from our past in the most unplanned or unintentioned of places there's only so many times you can use coincidences like that before dulling their effect michael b jordan and jonathan majors in creed 3 Tao you and greta lee in past lives the way they both make each other how tony looks away why didn't he bum rush him right there there's something to be said for his restraint the calculation the permutations at like internet speed your mind goes through all the permutations at, like, internet speed and realizes, oh, worst-case scenario, I eat for free. The way Petrulio walks to his door calmly, but then books out onto the highway. How guilt alone makes us look and act involuntarily suspicious. Lee Jung-jae in Squid Game. Al Pacino in The Insider. That cool, desaturated blue, beautifully shot by Dante Spinotti or Colin Farrell in, in Bruges, which should just be called In fucking Bruges, because anyone I know who references that film does so by that name. And I mean, why wouldn't you? Tony in Pursuit. Car chases are classic, you had me at hello moments for nerds like us. I mean, the whole premise of Beef on Netflix started off as just that, an enraged pursuit. But here, it's set against Tony's disregard for his own daughter's safety. The chuckle, demented's a word Carmela might use. Listen to yourself, you sound demented. The determination, it's all offset by the risk he's taking with Meadow in the car. Again, priorities. And how his can waver with the wind. The same way, to be fair, most of ours can. To me, it speaks to the psychology of being overtaken by something so much that you'd have total lack of regard for the safety of your own children, let alone yourself. Tony tells a frustrated Christopher to call him on an outside line, in the pouring rain. Is that a Gordon Lightfoot song? Or was that early morning rain? in the pockets full of sand aj brings carmella breakfast in bed but not before leaving a trail of disaster behind him also mm. Carmela's prolific door. command of the Room french language R-E-V. short scenes fast cuts christopher arrives at his outside line waterlogged payphones. there's somewhat of an homage of that in Barry. And though not homages per se, because they came first, there's that great shot of Will Hunting calling Skylar in Good Will Hunting and Sarita Chaudhary in Mississippi Masala with Denzel. Tony Debrief's Christopher on the Fabian Petrulio situation, the guy who flipped during Johnny Boy's reign and took down a lot of their crew. If you start doing the math on it, he must have been pretty young because he doesn't look that much older than Tony. What this scene is doing is establishing the plot of the episode in a quick, concise phone call. That's nicely cut short by a suspiciously approaching meadow. Perfect timing, as always. Carmela welcomes Father Phil into the house, an unannounced visit, in the rain, in the dark, mind you, that shakes Carmela's illness right from her being and sends her into a Doorbell dash of presentability. The edit of that is just perfect. Anxiety inducing. That cut before she opens the door to show us that she ran all the way upstairs to fix herself up, says it all. This was a moment bigger than a mere powder room touch up. She wants to pounce the priest straight up bag style. Then the importance of their encounter is punctuated by the orbiting camera. Also, notice how much light fills the frame when Father Phil first walks in, just before the home being filled with complete darkness, as you see here in these two sequential shots. Father Phil confesses his craving for her baked ziti, which also plays nicely as a metaphor for something else. Let's just call it breaking a vow. This despite her just telling him she still has a fever. Nowadays, someone tells you that you practically delete them from your phone. I got you a going-away present. I'm deleting you from my phone. You are finally free my animal magnetism. From complaining about Tony not being able to talk for two lousy minutes to Tony at dinner with Meadow talking. This scene is a classic how it starts versus how it ends. Starts calm, reminiscent, ends terse and defensive. Tony explains how Italians didn't have a lot of options at one point. Something uniquely relatable to any immigrant experience. Meadow counters with Mario Cuomo, as in her dad, could have been that or a version of that. Same way parents of Indian kids that fall short of Satya Nadella or Sundar Pishai or Rishi Sunak no doubt are reminded about their exploits and how shitty we are compared to them. It's an interesting idea, though dramaturgically the things we wanted our parents to be versus what they actually are and how that shapes and informs and guides that relationship as years go by tony's honesty is powerful here also putting it up front like this almost absolves him of what he does later this episode shrewd writerly planning His admission to Meadow that maybe he was too lazy to think for himself and just fell into the family business like his father and his uncle is a Christmas tree waiting for ornaments. Also pays off part of the last scene with Father Phil and Carmela about why she didn't go up to Maine with them. Had that happened, none of this would have. The idea that rebelling in his family would have been selling patio furniture on Route 22 makes you realize how Relative, everything is a simple kind of life. life. Love that getting him talking is part of Meadows con, how it frees her up to make a confession of her own, the tit for tat of confession making amongst families. His honesty begat hers. She tells him, of course, about the drugs she took during her SAT prep. But notice how, like him, she holds back some of the details. Namely, who she got them from. From slightly dishonest fathers and daughters to slightly dishonest priests and penitents. Building fires, offering up book recommendations, cleaning out their wine cellar, one bottle of beyond reproach Chianti at a time. We're officially on notice. This is an episode in parallel. A home game and an away game at the same time. Back to the restaurant. Meadow meets up with some co-eds, which to Tony's delight, but not for reasons one would think, gives him an out. Back at the payphone, the plates more or less check out, but Tony wants to make absolutely certain first. Gotta hand it to the guy. He's not an indiscriminate killer. There's homework goes into it this thing either has meaning or no meaning either it has meaning or no meaning now quick turn back at the house the pace of this episode is unlike any other in season one and a structural pattern has emerged longer scenes between two people being broken out and intercut with other longer scenes between two or more people or two competing storylines existing in parallel On the one hand, Carmella and the whole while the cat's away, the mouse will play kind of vibe. Also, keeping us tethered to the sausage factory in this way, in an episode when half of its occupants are in Maine, is a nice contrast. And also, even though we're only five episodes in, there's already a certain nostalgia to it. Here he goes now with the nostalgia. As Father Phil calls himself out for staking out their fridge for food, Melfi calls. This is Dr. Melfi. The way phone calls or Doorbell rings or texts or tweets or TikToks or power outages, you name it. Essentially, any regularness of life, otherwise mundane occurrence, shifts and alters the course of a day or night and possibly a life. This is the way the show chose to break open Tony's lie about Melfi being a woman and just four and a half episodes in, signaling they got bigger storylines to worry about. Though technically, is it a lie when you don't correct someone but rather just perpetuate their belief it's a nuanced question right lying is generally defined as knowingly presenting false information as the truth in this case by knowingly allowing someone to continue believing something false you're engaging in deception at a minimum which many people would consider a form of lying even though you're not actively stating an untruth This kind of lie is sometimes referred to as a lie of omission because it involves omitting the truth. Technically. On the page level, though, what were the options? He could have told her directly. Not likely. She could have found out either by following him or someone else seeing him and telling her about it. Possible, but not as blunt force as the way it was presented to us. It could have slipped accidentally. He could have said she and then quickly backpedaled, piquing her curiosity. In much the same way, he might have dialed Carmella first and accidentally said arena. And anything else would be too TV. These are the only real possibilities given the vibe, tone, and conceit of the show. And her calling the house directly sets up a device for future iterations of that most notably Arena in white caps. Is this Mrs. Sopranos? And that, to my mind, is what makes it the best option for the reveal. Though, her calling him at home does raise some questions. Did she breach a privacy boundary by calling their house without explicit consent? Was this an emergency situation that would obviate that? Most likely not. Carmela's assumption that they're sleeping together that that's why he didn't tell her. Coupled with the comedic timing of Father Phil's soft defending Tony, saying it's not what she thinks, not the worst of what she thinks anyways, protecting that sacrament of marriage while plowing through the briny goodness of her Cajun stuffed olives. Cajun stuffed olives? On its face, mixing sweet with sour like this sounds easy enough. But the execution here is different on so many levels. A housewife who's contemplating, at a minimum, you know she's contemplating it, cheating on her husband with a priest, while the priest is there for dinner and possibly some dessert, if it comes to that. As all of that is about to happen, Carmela learns the true gender of the therapist Tony's been seeing, and then commiserates about her husband breaking the sacrament she herself is potentially going to break. It's taking the classic wandering eyes and deceit tropes and Wrapping them in a French crepe of confusion, all their own. I had one of those for breakfast today. Same but different is where most people land creatively with stuff like this. Same but different and considerably better and all its own at the same time? That's The Sopranos. Tony goes to the address Christopher got for him. A dog barks, sends Tony running. And Fabian check in the surroundings like he's a guard in one of those towers in Braveheart or a watcher on the wall or Bodie out on the corner, ducking Marlowe before he muscled him. Come on with you, motherfuckers. I don't give a fuck. Right here. Fabian hears a car start, runs out the front door to try and catch a plate. The way he knows he's made. Show, don't tell. Now we know he knows. But Tony doesn't know that. Dramatic irony on drip. Back at the house, they're a few hours further in, as evidenced by the three logs nearing the end of their burn in the fireplace. They're dissecting the merits of Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ. Speaking of Scorsese and the word last, I just watched the documentary he did about the band called The Last Waltz and was absolutely floored. Of the first degree sweet Senders to Bull of Honey Just like honey babe from the You can't stop us on the road of freedom. I'm embarrassed to admit I didn't know the degree or extent of the band's reach across the history of music. The stranglehold they had over the top acts in the game of their era. I encourage you, if you're like me and didn't know either, to watch that doc. It's an audiovisual feast. And speaking of audiovisual feasts, Father Phil does a De Niro impression, or he to have been the one to play Jesus instead of Willem Defoe. It's rough, but a little better than Tom Hiddleston's impression of De Niro on Graham Norton's show that he did right in front of him. Interesting, given the context of the show, that he incorporates Barabbas in his monologue, the ruthless killer and criminal who was pardoned in lieu of Christ. Their conversation shifts to the paradox of Jesus and his teachings, the contradictions, love and violence, riches and materialism, forgiveness and judgment, exclusivity and inclusivity, healing, and suffering. For Father Phil, it all reduces to love, changing people through love. A direct hit to Carmela's battleship. Direct hit. From that, they shift to a Remains of the Day DVD. Because of Emma Thompson, Father Phil's all in. Father Phil, I didn't know you looked. What? the intercut of their moment, the setup, that something could happen between them. Very similar, by the way, to a specific shot in Remains of the Day. The notion of penitents falling for their priests, certainly an influence for an entire season of TV, a la Fleabag, from a priest about to potentially make a move to church bells tolling. Tony's out and about enjoying a smoke in the quiet. A cop passes by as he looks through the window of a hardware store. He gets an idea, makes for his car. One of my favorite shots in the show, that frame of him accelerating from darkness toward light. Then the approach at an auto shop could be Tony, logical extension from the last scene. But after a beat, the reveal is Fabian, himself doing some recon about whether or not anybody's been asking about it. That run back to the car to conceal his weapon on the passenger seat ups the stakes for us, visually. But who the fuck's leaving a piece on a seat like that in the first place? Well, besides Anton Chigurh. The extent of my gun etiquette comes from emptying the tank of my kids' super soakers and then putting them away after they're done with them. But this just seems a little amateur. Well, you see an amateur, I see 170 pounds of clay ready to be molded. Maine wasn't even an open carry state yet. That didn't happen until 2015, which, sidebar, got me wondering about the rationale for open carry laws. What's the thinking beyond simply live free or die? Or is that the thinking? Maine's legislature didn't outright enumerate any reasons that I could find, but the Conventional wisdom of the pro-open carry contingent is law-abiding citizens decrease crime rates, that them carrying heat deters criminal activity. The research appears to be ongoing on both sides due to the same logjam. Correlation isn't the same as causation. I know. David Hemingway over here. So the key insight was you don't always need to change people. What you really want to do is create a system, a system where it's hard to make mistakes. Tony goes back to the motel, heads for the phone booth. This episode is many, many things. But one of the things it does that it doesn't get enough credit for is serve as a kind of mausoleum for the phone booth. He goes through the yellow pages, trying to match up whether or not the hardware story he stumbled upon belonged to his target. Meanwhile, Fabian continues his pursuit, asks the bartender if anyone's been asking around. No dice. Why is he out in the open actively doing this? Shouldn't he know better? Call his Fed placement officer? Isn't there a protocol for this when you're lambing it and get made? According to the U.S. Marshals Service, The witness should immediately contact their case agent. Steps are then taken to relocate the witness, change their identity, even provide them with armed security if necessary. But this guy's out in the open thinking he's Chris Partlow and Snoop when they know Omar's back in town. Tony scans the pages for something, anything, same way guys defending AI would before he blew by them or... De'Aaron Fox, more recently, comes across a travel shop that specializes in trips to Italy. Fucking bingo. Mr. My Own Private Idaho tears out the page, heads off. The Departures magazine out there. Did you give any thought at all to someone else who might want to read it before you tore out the entire page? The shot of Tony walking up to the travel office with his headlights on behind him before they cut out. That desaturated blue again, filmed by Alex Sakharov, always immediately reminds me of other headlight illuminated shots just like it, in terms of mood, tone, feel. That frame outside Stofers and Michael Mann's Thief, shot by David Thorin. That scene in Pulp Fiction when Travolta's driving an overdosed Uma Thurman. The color palette on that one is just sick. And that sea of light poles going into the horizon, shot by the late Anjeev Sekula. That shot in No Country for Old Men, when Llewellyn Moss is running from a pursuing truck, shot by Roger Deakins. DiCaprio and Winslet arguing with each other in Revolutionary Road. That film hits the bone marrow, also shot by Roger Deakins. They're just classic beautiful frames that Conjure up a full dose of heightened intrigue and suspense. Tony's confirmation that it's his guy—a Ronald Reagan bust. The payoff, of course, for Tony telling Christopher Fabian made such busts in art class in the can. That Jackie even had one at his house that was supposed to be Frank Sinatra, but Christopher thought was Shaq. The literal dynamic range of those two options. He's uh-huh. <laughs> exactly. He's the uh, 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 <laughs> uh, honorary. Uh, 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 <laughs> embellished lips aside, the bust is pretty close. About as good as the Reagan mask Bodhi wore in point break, anyway. Meanwhile, Fabian stops by the motel. The quintessential neon sign outside a motel office, emphasized as recently is Noah Baumbach's White Noise, the Sharp Objects pilot, and there's also, of course, probably the film that invented the shot, Psycho. He checks a clipboard belonging to the cleaning crew, spots the name Soprano. Is this guy really going to beat Tony to the punch? Again, we know he knows, but Tony still doesn't know. That's the driver of all this. The de facto leverage Fabian has on Tony at this point almost making him an underdog. Scrappiest underdog in cinematic history. The little ways in which the writing gets us to root for him, when everything on its face tells us we're not supposed to. At home, Carmela and Father Phil are at the critical point of Remains of the Day, the manifestation of unrequited love, unspoken feelings, missed opportunities. Too close to home, and Carmela can't take it anymore. And I think that's what she's seeing right there, reacting to. Instead of what I think the bigger meaning of the movie, or in particular, the reason Chase includes it in the show is, and it's that of regret. And reflecting upon it, the Hopkins character devoted his life and loyalty to a man unworthy of it. And that's what the remains of the day is are, taking what little time you have left to make something meaningful. Out of a life. That's the note to Carmela. But it's unclear whether or not she got the memo as she's on the brink of committing her own immoral act, or controversial anyway. Back to the scene. Carmela's confession. How it's born from momentary innuendo that Father Phil's help might be something else. She feels guilty about enabling her life with Tony to come this far because it was easy, that doing what's easier is better than doing what's right, that it was all about money and things at the end of the day, the remains of the day. She thinks she's had a good run for too long and that it's just a matter of time before something bad happens to her, to them. That the wrath of God cometh and cometh quicker than you think, that was me. Paraphrasing the book of Nahum, which reads, The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. I figured since we're in the company of a priest in this scene, we should crack open the good book and find something quotable from it. Cormac McCarthy, rest in peace, also had something to say about this. The wrath of God lies sleeping. It was hid a million years before men were. And only men have the power to wake it. From fear over sins to the readying of a clip. It's just easier for some people. Fabian prepares for a duel. At, of all places, the Odenoke Motel. Come on, admit it. It kind of gives off OK Corral vibes. Tony guides a tipsy meadow back to their room. Fabian pursues from afar. Actually, he manages to get his gun trained on Tony. This is that limited series instead of a 10-year run the show's flirting with. But a couple other motel patrons distract him. His head clearly doesn't work as fast as Tony's. Probably why he peaked professionally and had no choice but turn government informant. Now that I think about it, the guy's story is kind of playing out like Hopkins in Remains of the Day. Missed opportunities. Father Phil comforts a fallen Carmela, says repentance and renouncement is her path. But upon momentary reflection, her confession was good enough. She can't part with the lifestyle, with the things, the wanting. She's like a richly funded VC startup told they have to undergo austerity measures for the solvency of the business, but whose employees, who did just fine before the raise, cry poverty. Tony tucks in Meadow, quick cut, suggesting something more important, perhaps more sinister, is happening back at home. Then back to Father Phil, who gives Carmella communion, but takes most of it for himself. The wine, that is. The tension of this scene, vis-a-vis the close-up of her mouth upon receiving the sacrament. A slightly different angle, though similar idea, to the communion shot in two. But more importantly, it's a chasey treatise on the sexuality of religious ritual and all the pertinent themes it conveys. Temptation. Inner conflict search for meaning, reconciling primal instincts with morality. Meadow wakes up. Tony's gone, back over at the payphone. We're immediately thinking, no, go back inside. The unraveling of the dramatic irony we were gifted earlier. The phone call outside is about opposites. Christopher wants to clip a rat, which would put him what he calls a hair from a certain place away from being made. Tony wants to take the guy out himself due to timing. He could lam it if they don't move quick. Might already know. Which I took as a signal from the writer that Tony knew or considered it all along. He plays chess, not checkers, remember? Carmella and Father Phil are awakened by a phone. That way he checks her out as she crawls over to it on her hands and knees like a cougar. It's AJ. Says he's staying over at a friend's house. The way father phil looks at her again when he realizes his opportunity that maybe he doesn't want to follow suit go the way of anthony hopkins's character the almost kiss with the priestly vestments very much in the foreground broken up of course by a sudden urge to puke <laughs> Imagine if he'd waited a few more seconds. Certainly, one way to end an affair. While she waits for him, notice the realization moment she has right before the cut back to Maine. It's what prompts her phone call to Tony to check in on him, see if he's even there, or maybe she's feeling guilty and wants to hear his voice to purify things, make the encounter with Father Phil vanquish but what it artfully does is make tony suspicious that fabian is in fact onto him now now we are more or less on equal footing with tony in terms of knowledge he's at least caught up to us the two shots of her waiting in the kitchen one up close and then one out wider giving room for the lightning to encircle her Those lightning bolts of wrath aren't very far away at all. The next morning, Tony and Meadow head out, load up the car. Fabian, still there, watches from afar. The choice to make the camera shake as he peers through binoculars. Tony's giving him the illusion that he's leaving. And all the while staying calm, not giving any tells one way or the other. You got to figure he knows he's being washed, or at least senses as much. And what's that thing called when you do something to make someone else think you're doing it, but actually you're just setting them up? Uh, laying them into a trap? I guess, baiting? Yeah, you must have been at the top of your fucking class. Tony drops her off at Colby College, says he'll be right back. Forgot his watch. Asks for a student paper, because who doesn't have time to read a student paper? Paper board, paper board, all of them the my Back at the house, Father Phil wakes up with a vicious hangover. That the two people that got shitfaced this episode were Father Phil and Meadow is kind of interesting. The only two more or less innocent people this episode. He somewhat apologizes for the nothing burger that happened, all while going for the carmy look, albeit with a white shirt that isn't as crisp fitting. She plays it off, all's well. But it's nice that she at least knows she was desired by him. Even if his stomach came between them. And a moment of clarity for her did, too, anyway. Fabian recruits two addicts turned hit people to take out Tony, all in exchange for a bag of dope. But they walk. Not that stupid. Not yet, at least. Gotta wonder, though. Why delegate now? I go for broke the night before then retreat and farm it out to a bunch of amateur dope fiends let the dope fiends draw fucking straws then later he's on the phone calling around for some more recruits as if there were a brokerage that specializes in this niche when he hears something this scene is all about how to kill someone in broad daylight without setting off any alarms How, when you're under the gun, literally and figuratively, every sound, every out-of-place piece of normalcy you're used to is amplified. Note the duck as he exits his office. Then the decoy of the deer, thinking he's in the clear until Tony comes from behind with some red electrical wire. The two-shot, low-angle kill. Tony's Guys Like Us line feels like a great title for something. The ducks afterward, how Tony looks up. The blood on his hands. There's a very similar shot at the end of Remains of the Day. Can't help but think it was a little salute to that. And then there's the matter of leaving the body there. I mean, it's understood that there's going to be a disposal. Tony wouldn't be that messy. A simple police investigation looking at who came in and out of town that week could easily put T on a list of suspects. So you gotta wonder, what's the strategy all the way up there in Maine? Limited resources and all. Boots on the ground. Tony pulls up to pick up a patiently waiting meadow. Fills her with stories about where he was, then off to Bowdoin, wrapping up their tour of the Little Ivies. In the car, she notices mud on his shoes. Then the blood on his hand says it was a screen door. She's convinced he threw down with that guy. But he says she can't believe everything she thinks because she was seeing pink elephants last night on account of being drunk, a euphemism for hallucinations due to alcohol. Delirium tremens. Useless fuck can't hold his liquor. (laughs) She relents, but still suspicious. Railroads him with an I love you to see if that squeezes the juice of honesty out of him, but nah. Over at Bowden, as she goes back to discuss her future, Tony's stymied by a Hawthorne quote, who, by the way, specialized in writing about guilt, sin, and redemption. So it's absolutely zero coincidence, he's the quotable insert for this episode's liner notes. The relationship between Bowden and Hawthorne again, a student passing by, reminds us their most famous alum. No man can wear one face to himself and another to the multitude without finally getting bewildered as to which may be true. There's that sad clown conundrum. Wrapping things up, they pull up at the house. Carmelo welcomes the two Ivy Leaguers back, a favorite expression of the show, relayed every other season. Carmelo says it in season one, already in three. Tony B. in Five. There's no food in the house on account Monsignor Jughead ate it all. A likely reference to the long-running character in Archie Comics, Jughead Jones, who, among other things, is obsessed with eating food. She confesses, that's twice this episode, that Father Phil spent the night because she doesn't want Tony to hear about it from someone else. Well, Ellen, the guy spends the night here with you. And all he does is slip you a wafer? That's verging on sacrilege. Oh, I didn't mean to verge. But she's also flexing in an anything you can do, I can do better kind of way. The thornbird line refers to a mythical bird that searches for thorn trees from the day it's hatched. The story goes that when it finds the perfect thorn, it impales itself, singing the most beautiful song ever heard as it slowly dies. It's a metaphor for the pursuit of love and happiness, which brings both joy and suffering. And then the bomb she drops. Oh, by the way, your therapist called. Jennifer? The way she drops it. The way she walks off that mic drop cadence, the way Tony chases after her. Relationship one-upsmanship at its very best. And makes you realize how she got him back under the guise of a religious experience. She atoned by shoving it up his ass. That's all I got. Thanks for listening see you next time you can take all the tea in China.